This podcast is made possible by thousands of dedicated listeners just like you. Be a part of this powerful three-decade legacy of evangelization by visiting materdayradio.com or downloading the Hail Mary Media app. And thank you for joining us on the bridge between your faith and everyday life. The Holy Spirit continues to set hearts on fire with the love of Christ and inspire people to bring the good news to a world that is aching to hear it. Welcome to Blazing the Trail, a weekly show dedicated to the church's mission of evangelization. Now, here's your guide on this grand adventure, Catholic singer, songwriter, author, and speaker, Miriam Marston. Welcome back to Blazing the Trail here on Mater Dei Radio. I'm your host, Miriam Marston, and it is a joy to be with you all each week as we explore together what it means to be a missionary disciple of Jesus Christ. And what do I mean by that? You know, it's, it's pretty simple, actually. I'm talking about someone who has had an encounter with Jesus and who wants to tell other people about it. Because this news of what God can do in a person's life, this news is just too good to keep to ourselves. It is meant to be shared. And once again, my friends, this week I would like to spend some time in scripture and song as we reflect on the call of Jesus' first disciples. And the backdrop for this episode is going to be the sea and the town of Galilee. So get ready to make a little pilgrimage for the next 20 minutes or so, as we'll once again be using the gift of our imagination as we place ourselves into the stories of Scripture. We begin with three lines from the Gospel of Mark. On another occasion, Jesus began to teach by the sea. A very large crowd gathered around him so that he got into a boat on the sea and sat down, and the whole crowd was beside the sea on land. So Mark tells us that a very large crowd has gathered to hear Jesus teach. But how did you get here? That's where I want to go just a little further back and imagine the day you were invited to join the crowd that was gathering at the shore. In our mind's eye, let's imagine a tiny village in Galilee. It's early in the morning, and you are fast asleep. A knock at the door jerks you awake, pulling you out of the dream you were having. And it's too bad, because it wasn't a bad dream at all. In the dream, there was a person standing, clothed in something more than just garments. It's almost as though he was wearing the light. He was both formidable and gentle, a somewhat paradoxical presence. He spoke no words and only looked ahead intently. Looking at you? You're not sure, but already the memory of the dream is fading. Oh well, it probably meant nothing at all and wasn't worth remembering. The knock comes again, and you grumble because you suddenly remember that you made a promise to your friend that you would accompany him to the seashore to listen to a teacher who was in town. You heard that the teacher's name was Jesus, and he was from Nazareth, of all places, and there was a rumor going around, too, that he could perform miracles. But your friend didn't want to go alone, and you didn't have any plans, so it was hard to refuse his request for company. You tumble out of bed and open the door. Your friend steps over the threshold, bringing with him the hot and dusty air. Ah, what I wouldn't give for a little rain, you think. 
Your friend has an excited gleam in his eyes that you can't understand, especially this early in the morning. It's too early to get excited about anything. He rushes you along and hardly ten minutes have gone by since waking up when you find yourself in the road walking at a swift pace. It's not far to the water, and already the crowd is getting noisy and dense. Your friend insists on getting closer to the rabbi, so you squeeze through a few gaps and find some space on the sand. You see the teacher, and for a tiny moment, you sense something familiar about him. But you shrug it off, because you're tired and haven't even had a proper breakfast yet. The teacher raises his hand, and with that one gesture, the noise of the crowd turns to silence. He starts to speak, and you half-listen, as a solitary bird flies across the sky above, making its way toward the horizon. You focus on the bird as the man's words wash over you. Blessed are they who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the land. Blessed are the clean of heart, for they will see God. Blessed are they who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You stop staring at the bird in that endlessly blue sky, and your gaze fixes on Jesus. That last statement of his caught your attention. Poor in spirit. You're not entirely sure what he meant by it, but you become abruptly and uncomfortably aware of an emptiness that's been gnawing at you for some time now. It was different from a physical hunger that could be satisfied. This was something else. It was something you hadn't even mentioned to your friend. You didn't want him to think that you were suffering from some imaginary deficiency, especially when you'd spent so long trying to convince everyone else that you had it all together. You push around some bits of wood and shells on the sand with your feet, trying to use the movement to disguise your inner turmoil. Am I living in a kind of poverty? Does this explain how I've been feeling lately? And does this man have the answer? Does he have the cure? And now I'm going to let the evangelist Luke tell us what happens next and keep envisioning yourself in this scene. While the crowd was pressing in on Jesus and listening to the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret. He saw two boats there alongside the lake. The fishermen had disembarked and were washing their nets. Getting into one of the boats, the one belonging to Simon, he asked him to put out a short distance from the shore. Then he sat down and taught the crowds from the boat. After he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Put out into deep water and lower your nets for a catch. Simon said in reply, Master, we have worked hard all night and have caught nothing. But at your command, I will lower the nets. When they had done this, they caught a great number of fish and their nets were tearing. They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come to help them. They came and filled both boats so that they were in danger of sinking. When Simon Peter saw this, he fell at the knees of Jesus and said, Depart from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. For astonishment at the catch of fish they had made seized him and all those with him, and likewise James and John, the sons of Zebedee, who were partners of Simon. Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. From now on, you will be catching men. 
When they brought their boats to the shore, they left everything and followed him. That is a passage from Luke chapter 5. So you've heard Jesus teach, and you've seen this miraculous catch of fish. You've witnessed these men drop their nets and leave everything to follow Jesus. And now you walk back home with your friend, and your mind is spinning. And as you'll hear in the last line of the refrain of the song I'm about to play, Do I dare say something good was in the air that day at the shore? And yes, we must dare to speak of this goodness. And yes, we should speak it aloud in our own prayer in the quiet of our home. But we must also dare to speak of the goodness of God to others. And sometimes when we prepare to step out in faith like that, we might experience a certain temptation to retreat, to withdraw, maybe to remain silent and passive, perhaps even doubting why we should bother with such things in the first place. But don't let the evil one sneak in there. He'll try to work against our memories, try to get us to ignore any ache or longing which risks being filled up by a relationship with Christ. He wants it all kept secret and quiet so that no one will be inspired to seek out the Lord. The enemy hates it when we walk along the Sea of Galilee in our own lives, and so he tries to lure us away from the edges of the shore, which are the edges of the heavenly kingdom. He wants to drag us back to the drowsiness of the first few minutes of the day, when all we want to do is turn over and go right back to sleep. But let's stay awake, my friends, and let's keep journeying through this land of Galilee, this place of encounter with Christ. We'll continue this pilgrimage with a song entitled That Day at the Shore, and then we'll continue with the reflection. Something good was in the air. 
reading from the Gospel according to John. The next day John was there again with two of his disciples, and as he watched Jesus walk by, he said, Behold the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard what he said and followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following him and said to them, What are you looking for? They said to him, Rabbi, which translated means teacher, Where are you staying? He said to them, Come, and you will see. 
So they went and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day. It was about four in the afternoon. Andrew, the brother of Simon Peter, was one of the two who heard John and followed Jesus. He first found his own brother Simon and told him, We have found the Messiah, which is translated anointed. Then he brought him back to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You will be called Cephas, which is translated Peter. The next day he decided to go to Galilee, and he found Philip. And Jesus said to him, Follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the town of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and told him, We have found the one about whom Moses wrote in the law, and also the prophets, Jesus, son of Joseph, from Nazareth. But Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come from Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. So here in this passage, we have John the Baptist, who directs two of the disciples to Jesus, and one of those disciples, Andrew, goes to find his brother to tell him to come meet Jesus. And then Jesus finds and calls Philip, who in turn finds Nathaniel and tells him about the Messiah. I'm sure there were other details involved, but we should really appreciate the simplicity with which evangelization is happening here. There's pointing, calling, meeting, following. In the dialogue, it's pretty sparse and direct. And really, those first followers of Christ were just that. They followed. Maybe at first, Jesus heard the shuffling steps behind him, imitating his own stops and starts. He knows there is a cluster of curious souls not far behind, and he has already loved them from all eternity. So, he turns around and asks what they are looking for. Perhaps it was the least sheepish of the group who responded, Rabbi, where are you staying? And it's interesting that they answer his question with a question. Why is that? It's entirely possible that they simply wanted to follow Jesus to his house. Maybe they had a lot of questions and lingering in the street wasn't the most convenient way to ask them. But there could be a deeper meaning here too. Perhaps they sensed that Jesus, while perfectly present in this world, was present somewhere else as well. He was drawing his wisdom and strength from that place, which they would soon learn was the heart of the Father, the heavenly kingdom. I imagine the Lord was smiling when he responded to their question, Come and you will see. Jesus doesn't just want to show his disciples a home made of walls and floors. He wants to show us those spiritual realities where he invites us to live. So scripture tells us that they remained with him that day. And we even get one of those delightful details, which really impress upon us the the tangibility of these events. It was about four in the afternoon. And thus began the earthly ministry of our Lord, who taught his disciples how he lived entirely under the canopy of his Father's will. After all, he would tell his disciples that his food was to do the will of the one who sent him. And it was the will of the Father to send his Son among the children of the world, so that we might have the glorious opportunity to dwell at his side for all time. So along the shores of Galilee, word began to spread. One by one, the people were waking up to the reality of who was in their midst. I briefly mentioned Philip, who found Nathanael sitting under the fig tree. 
Nathaniel responds a little bemusedly to the invitation to meet Jesus as he replies, Can anything good come from Nazareth? He would soon discover that, yes, all that is good and holy has come forth from Nazareth. Still, Nathaniel is a bit confused when he encounters Jesus because he claims to know him already. How do you know me? Nathaniel asks. Jesus answered and said to him, Before Philip called you, I saw you under the fig tree. Nathaniel is impressed with Jesus' foreknowledge, and so he responds, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. But Jesus assures him that he will see greater things in this. Indeed, these apostles will witness miracles, healings, the passion, the resurrection, the ascension of our Lord. Nathaniel and his friends will receive the gifts of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost and will carry the joy of the good news across the land. And a little further down the road, nearly every single one of them will die a martyr's death. Nathaniel's faith, rooted in his encounter with Christ, will carry him far away from the comfort of that shady spot under the fig tree. We cannot predict every twist and turn ahead of us, but we know that we are called by Christ, who knows us by name already, and who promises to us that we will see greater things as well. And there may come a time when the Lord turns the question around and asks us, Where are you staying? When that moment comes, I pray that we have the faith and fortitude to respond confidently. In you, Lord, let me stay and rest in you. So from the mountains to the sea to the fig trees, Jesus walked these roads with the ones he loved. The landscape of Galilee was forever changed in the eyes of the disciples. I mean, how could it not be? God Himself had walked along these shores and in the market and among the houses. If we ever find ourselves stumbling in the Christian life and struggling to find our place in the church's mission, it is good to remember that the Lord calls each of us as He called those first disciples. Through the power of the Holy Spirit and the sacraments, He is as real and present to us now as He was to those men and women in Galilee. Pope Francis uh, reflected on some of these themes in his Easter homily of 2014. He writes, After the death of the Master, the disciples had scattered. Their faith had been utterly shaken. Everything seemed over. All their certainties had crumbled and their hopes had died. But now that message of the women, incredible as it was, came to them like a ray of light in the darkness. The news spread. Jesus is risen as he said. And then there was his command to go to Galilee. The women had heard it twice, first from the angel and then from Jesus himself. Let them go to Galilee. There they will see me. To return to Galilee means to reread everything on the basis of the cross and its victory, fearlessly. To reread everything, Jesus' preaching, his miracles, the new community, the excitement and the defections, even the betrayal, to reread everything starting from the end, which is a new beginning, from this supreme act of love. For each of us, too, there is a Galilee at the origin of our journey with Jesus. To go to Galilee means something beautiful. It means rediscovering our baptism as a living fountainhead, drawing new energy from the sources of our faith and our Christian experience. 
To return to Galilee means above all to return to that blazing light with which God's grace touched me at the start of the journey. From that flame, I can light a fire for today and every day and bring heat and light to my brothers and sisters. That flame ignites a humble joy, a joy which sorrow and distress cannot dismay, a good, gentle joy. Pope Francis continues, In the life of every Christian, after baptism, there is also another Galilee, a more existential Galilee. The experience of a personal encounter with Jesus Christ who called me to follow him and to share in his mission. In this sense, returning to Galilee means treasuring in my heart the living memory of that call. When Jesus passed my way, gazed at me with mercy and asked me to follow him. To return there means reviving the memory of that moment when his eyes met mine. The moment when he made me realize that he loved me. Today, tonight, each of us can ask, what is my Galilee? I need to remind myself to go back and remember, where is my Galilee? Do I remember it? Have I forgotten it? Seek and you will find it. There the Lord is waiting for you. Have I gone off on roads and paths which which made me forget it? Lord, help me. Tell me what my Galilee is, for you know that I want to return there to encounter you and to let myself be embraced by your mercy. Do not be afraid. Do not fear. Return to Galilee. The gospel is very clear. We need to go back there to see Jesus risen and to become witnesses of his resurrection. This is not to go back in time. It is not a kind of nostalgia. It is returning to our first love in order to receive the fire which Jesus has kindled in the world and to bring that fire to all people, to the very ends of the earth. Again, that is from an Easter homily that Pope Francis gave in 2014. What a beautiful invitation, my friends, to return to our first love, not out of a nostalgic impulse, but rather a missionary one. We can take a step back and examine how the Lord has been present at every turn, at the peak of the mountain and in the depths of the valley. By reaching back into our memories and recalling encounters with the living God, we're allowing for that grace to pull us forward and to reshape our hearts, our imagination and senses, so that they're more closely in tune with the loving designs of our Heavenly Father. And memory doesn't operate exclusively at an individual level either. It's at the center of the Eucharistic liturgy. Do this in memory of me. We gather each week in memory of the Lord. We consume His body and blood in memory of His passion and resurrection. But the implications of sacred memory shouldn't stop there. We're called to spend the rest of the week outside of the Mass living in memory of Him. In this way, our very lives become Eucharistic as we learn how to imitate that sacrificial love of our Lord. And as we wrap up this episode, I just want to echo those words of Pope Francis and invite you to return to the Galilee of your own life, that place where you first encountered the merciful love of God in order to receive the fire which Jesus has kindled in the world and to bring that fire to all people, to the very ends of the earth. Thank you so much for tuning in. Again, my name is Miriam Marston, and I hope you'll join me next time as we continue to blaze a trail of faith here in the Pacific Northwest. 
Until next time, stay well and stay close to Christ. God bless you all. You've been listening to Blazing the Trail, a weekly show dedicated to the church's mission of evangelization. For more information on Miriam Marston and her work, plus an archive of our past shows, visit us online at matradayradio.com or download the Hail Mary Media app. Blazing the Trail is produced at the studios of Matre Radio in Portland, Oregon.